This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, website, portfolio, or an online store. To create your own space, visit squarespace.com and save 10% by using offer code TREK7. And by TrekFan. It's not just a fan club, it's an adventure. You'll explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. Don't miss out. Help us move toward that Star Trek future by visiting trekfan.org. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our new alien badges featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our show dedicated exclusively to Star Trek Enterprise, or as I like to call it, just Enterprise. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me once again this week, coming to us from Australia, is Kate Walsh. Hello, Kate. How are you tonight? I'm well, thanks, Chris. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Now, I I notice you're wearing blue. Now, is that in honor of Enterprise's Starfleet blue undies? Precisely. Um, and I, I mean, obviously I'm wearing a blue top. I won't tell you what I'm wearing underneath. But, <laughs> okay, um, that's good. Yeah, um, I'm a massive fan of those blue undies, particularly um, I think that Trip models them especially well. <laughs> he does, he does. And we do get to oh, see them quite goodness. a bit throughout the series, don't we? We do. It's surprising how often they show the crew of the NX-01 in those blue undies. And I don't know that we get to see anything like that in any of the other series, so it is one of those things that makes Enterprise quite unique. It is, it is. I think that Archer's crew may have established a trend that was picked up by the Starfleet Academy School of Fashion. Ah, I see. So groundbreakers in more ways than one. I think so. Well, speaking of groundbreakers, you know, what we're going to talk about today a little bit is... Brandon Braga. And, you know, Brandon got his start on TNG and, of course, played a major role in Voyager. And then he and Rick Berman together created Enterprise. And as I've talked about on the Ready Room and other shows in the past, you know, I'm a big fan of Brandon Braga's work. I think he did a lot of great things for Star Trek and he wrote some of the most interesting episodes. And, of course, there are episodes here and there that maybe weren't the best episodes in the eyes of all fans, but some of the very best Star Trek was written by him. Well, that's true. I mean, I think back to The Next Generation and my absolute favorite episode of that series is Cause and Effect. Yeah. That and the finale of of, uh, Next Gen are two of the episodes that are considered right up there in terms of 
the overall quality of Next Generation. And then we look at Star Trek Voyager and he moved up through the ranks of that show as it went along and then we got to season four, five and six and he was actually executive producer and had such an influence on that show, um, of which I'm a massive fan myself. It's interesting that you mentioned cause and effect because it's not my number one favorite episode of The Next Generation, but it is one of my favorite episodes, not only of The Next Generation, but of Star Trek in general. I I love the concept of the episode. I love the creative touches, the way I love how Beverly breaks her glass every time, but they, they vary that up so that it doesn't feel too repetitive. And then the last time when you hear it, but you don't see it, it, it's a it's a brilliant concept. Definitely one of my favorites. And All Good Things is two of the best hours of television that you'll ever find. So fantastic work. But you know, Kate, we can sit here all day if we want. We can talk about Brandon. We can talk about his work and, and what we think is good about it. But instead of doing that, why don't we just hear from Brandon himself? Now, you had a chance recently to catch up with Brandon and record an interview for Warp 5. I did. He was incredibly generous with his time and he was an absolute pleasure to talk to. And it was some really fascinating insights, not just into his work on Enterprise, but also um, the things that drive him and inspire him and have shaped his work for the whole time that he's been uh, working on Star Trek. So let's dive into that right now for everyone. Now, we did catch up with Brandon as he was doing a lot of traveling, filming Cosmos, and so the connection is a little bit bad here and there, so we apologize for the quality of the sound if it breaks up at times, but there's a lot of great stuff in here. So I hope you all enjoy listening to Brandon Braga in his first ever podcast appearance. Today, I'm fortunate enough to have the company of a very special guest. He's written more than 100 episodes of Star Trek, worked on three separate Star Trek series, and has even co-created one of them. Yes, today I'm sitting down for a chat with Brennan Braga. Welcome, Brennan. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I know that you're very busy at the moment, so thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Do you want to just start by telling us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Well, I'm getting some stuff that's not coming out till next year, uh, early next year. So I don't really want to get too into it, but I'm, I'm working on a, a remake of the Carl Sagan classic, Cosmos, which is a document science, I think we'll call it a documentary, kind of a science experience. It came out in 1980. We're, I'm redoing with Seth MacFarlane, who, like me, is a huge fan of the original and, and wants not so much a remake as the new iteration of Cosmos. This is a big enough topic that we can make many incarnations. And I also am just starting pre-production, or not even pre-production, pre-pre-production, uh, called Salem, about the Salem Witch Trials, but I didn't even cast that yet. So that's in the very early stages. Sure. So it sounds like they're both going to keep you very busy. Brandon, this is obviously a Star Trek podcast, and so our listeners are very interested in your work in Star Trek, and in particular, the work on Enterprise. So what is it about your work on Enterprise, both as co-creator, executive producer, and writer, that you are most proud of? Well, Enterprise, I think, as with any of the Star Trek shows, is that I'm just I'm proud that we did some really special, really cool episodes. 
in this one in particular, is uh, it's all about the individual episodes, in my opinion. Star Trek is bigger than any one particular series or any one particular captain or any one particular writer. Star Trek is so vast in, t- in terms of television, any TV entity that's ever existed. I, all I can say is I'm proud of the cast. I think we put together a stellar cast, and it, they, they did a stellar job. Um, I thought that um, given the somewhat strict parameter, creative parameters we were given, we did a pretty good job doing the prequel. I wish we had taken it further, but that's the regret category. But I'm generally very happy with the quality of the storytelling, particularly in the third and fourth seasons. But there were some real gems in the first and second seasons, too. And that's, that's all you can strive for, you know. And do you have a favorite episode? Of Enterprise? You know, I, I get that question about all the shows, and it's really difficult to say. I, I mean, offhand, uh, there was an episode called Dear Doctor, I think it was in the first season, that I thought was a stupendous gratification of the potential of the series. Um, it was very offbeat. It felt distinctly Enterprise. It was kind of only a story that you could have done on Enterprise, I think, you know, as compared to certain other episodes we did that could have, could have been done on any of the sh- episodes. Um, I really liked the episode Stigma. I liked the episode Shuttlepod 1. These are all episodes that um, were uniquely enterprise. And that's what you try to do on any television show. Why is this story, why can this episode only be done on this television show? And what is it that you define as those qualities which make a story uniquely enterprise? Well, is it capitalizing on the prequel element? Is it capitalizing on these particular set of characters? with their particular viewpoint on the world, which isn't quite like what Picard or Hainway or Kurtz is. Is is it and then just kind of that ineffable, does it feel like an Enterprise episode? What is an Enterprise episode? Mm-hmm. Anybody who's watched the show or is a fan of the show in particular probably could tell you. You know Enterprise is a little different than all of us. So you want those kind of stories to kind of be there. Particularly the fourth season that Manny Cotto did was really distinct. I mean, those were really episodes that you just were felt um, really unique. Particularly that fourth season really started to draw on those distinct prequel elements that tied it in with the original series. I always said I thought the fourth season should have been the first season. But, you know, Manny wasn't around at the time. Sometimes... You, you find a writer that writes the, be- the show better than you can write it, and that was certainly the case with Manny. In terms of those tie-ins with the original series, whilst it was more obvious in the fourth season, there were little things that were done all throughout. Manny Cotto's approach was more broad and aggressive. Yes. In terms of um, the prequel elements. Mine tended to be slightly more abstract and, and more more in the details. Yes. You know, um, people not liking to use transporters and such. He went at it boldly and aggressively. And I think that's probably what, what the show should have been. Um, but, you know, it's up for debate anyway. One of the things I did notice in Enterprise is that the show had its own version of the Kirk, Spock and McCoy relationship, which was mirrored very well with Archer, T'Pol and Trip. Was that in the design? 
It was. That was int- that that triumvirate was intentional, and that's why we had captain's table dinner scenes, um, which we were hoping would become a, a running thing. I guess it, it kind of did. But yeah, we, were, we designed it that way as a kind of a nod to the original series. Mm-hmm. And I think it worked out pretty well, largely because it was cast well. You know, I hesitate to even say this, but if I have a favorite cast member, it would be Connor Trenier. Because mm-hmm. I don't want to diminish the actors' contributions. They're all wonderful. But I have a particular soft spot for Connor. And that may be because he just, to me, embodied the spirit of Enterprise so well. Just young and excited, but completely clueless about how to handle <laughs> the realities of deep space. And that's why the good trip episodes, I thought, um, you know, he was the one who was getting wrapped up in trouble with alien species and was always trying to do the right thing, but mm. just couldn't quite get out of his own view on the, on the universe. And it's, it was interesting to me personally. And, Perhaps I'm overanalyzing, but it's the first, you know, usually on Star Trek shows, it's the science fiction characters, you know, the Data, the Spock, the Seven of Nine. Yeah. You know, the, those are the characters that, the Odos, that get the most attention. I thought Trip worked in that same way. Um, or the holographic doctor striving to be human, mm-hmm. that kind of business. I thought Trip was the most fun to write for on Enterprise. In that same way, he, strangely enough, seemed the most striving to be human. There was an innocence about him. Yes. Yes. And I think it certainly helped, again, for me personally, that Connor has a certain Andy Griffith vibe. Mm. Um, There was a show called, uh, an American series called The Andy Griffith Show. It was on even before I was born. But it became one of my top two favorite television shows. The Twilight Zone, of course, being number one. But my second favorite was the Andy Griffith show. And there's just something about his innocent charm that reminded me of Andy Griffith. Yeah. And um, Connor was my favorite. As a viewer, I've heard a lot of different things about different aspects of Enterprise. And there seems to be a bit of tension in the fan community based on their expectations of what a prequel should be and how it fitted in with the original series. Did you feel that pressure going into it? No, there was no pressure because it was it was the whole idea. In other words, it's not like someone said do a prequel. It's like, oh my god, how am I going to live up to this? Mm. It was it was Rick Berman's idea first of all, and I embraced it and ran with it. So there was no pressure. It was fun. Mm. I think the only and you know, and there's certainly no pressure in terms of tying it into the the other series. That's just informational. You know, that's kind of informational to some degree. Like you got to be careful about becoming a novelty. You know, yeah. oh, oh, look, you know, this is how the Borg started. Yeah. You know, now I never in a million years would have even thought of doing that. Um, that was a case where I thought it was a very successful episode called mm. New Generation, which was my homage to John Carpenter's The Thing. Yeah. His version of The Thing. And um, I had a lot of fun with it. I happened to think that worked. Our Ferengi episode, however, I thought was dreadful. I never particularly liked the Ferengi to begin with. And it was awful. We did a terrible job with it. And it just, it, doing a prequel, tying things in, can very quickly become a tiresome novelty. Yeah. Your show has to live in its own skin and to be its own thing. And the fact that it's a prequel almost sheds at some point. Mm-hmm. And you're just living in the world of Enterprise. That's was my hope for it. And I think at times it worked and at times it didn't. I think we were, I've said this in 
the DVD, the Blu-ray DVD interview of, you know, we wanted this to be even more earthbound. Mm-hmm. Um, we wanted the whole first season to take place on the earth of the building of the Enterprise. And it was going to be the launch of our first warp ship. And it was going to be much, if you, if I'm making any sense at all. Yeah. And uh, the studio just didn't want that. They wanted a ship. They didn't even want a prequel initially. And it was essentially that which brought in the temporal Cold War storylines, I've heard you say. Yeah, that was an idea I had for a separate television show that was just sitting on the back burner. I never did anything with it, but I always liked the idea. And I used it for Enterprise. It seemed, you know, at the time, and perhaps I was just convincing myself that the show would be both a prequel and a sequel. Because yeah. the, the Temple of Cold War, of course, takes place in the 30th century. So it seemed cool at the time. I think that they, in, in analysis, it was probably just confusing. Mm-hmm. And sadly, it never got resolved because the, the network uh, canceled the show. Yeah, that's a shame. We know you very well from the various Trek episodes that you've written as someone that has quite a strong interest in time travel as a theme. You've written some amazing episodes in Next Gen and Voyager as well, and I'm curious as to where that interest in time travel has come from. You know, um, yeah, it, it, it would continue um, even into some other post-Star Trek work like Flash Forward or show. But yeah, I've, I've always, I, I don't know what it is. My interest in time travel, I don't know where it comes from. It's, it's I mean, I certainly always enjoyed time travel stories, Um in my re- various readings, it was nothing I ever set out to do. Mm. But I think one of the things that intrigued me was when I first started on Next Generation, there were some ground rules that Gene Roddenberry had laid out. And one of them was no time travel. It just, he thought, was mm. um, cliche or implausible or whatever. And so it just got me thinking about time travel. And um, my first so-called time travel episode was an episode called cause and effect, Mm. which is not technically time travel in the way that you would at that time, at that period in television history, you you would not characterize it as time travel in the way we were all familiar with. Yeah. Because time travel was traveling backward in time. Yeah. Traveling forward in time. Hop in a car and and off you go. Yeah. This was stuck in a loop of time and Gene was still around back then and, I kind of slipped it through the cracks. Oh. It's not time travel. It's a time loop, man. <laughs> Sneaky. And then I would kind of, I, I, I just suddenly just kind of fell in love with the idea of bending time. But it's it to me what time travel gave the show wasn't so much about the mechanics of time travel. That's not what it, this stuff was really about to me. Um, I was always, it's like in the same way that, you know, probably my coup de grace time travel for Next Generation was the finale of all good things. Mm. You know, if you look at all good things, it's really the story of a, of a man's life. It's kind of Christmas carolish. Yeah. It's a story, and it's a perfect finale to a, a show because you get to see the characters as you remember them when it started, mm-hmm. as they are now, as you love them, and how they might be. But the truth is, you, you could have told that story without literalizing the time travel. As a narrative conceit, mm. you could have just simply cut to different time periods. 
But what the time travel does uh, in the science fiction context is allows you to just tell that story, but then literalizes it just enough to give it that extra impact. Yeah. If that makes any sense. And so it's really a bending of reality that serves to make the character work interesting. In the, in the case of cause and effect and some of my other stories, it's, it's pretty just kind of sci-fi power techniques. Mm. But at, at, at its best, time travel, you know, whether it's all good things or, or the episode of Voyager Timeless or, or even parallels on Next Generation, you get a, a situation where you're able to explore character things. Yeah. And really, it's just a way of bending reality. And I could point to some other episodes I've done where what I really got into was not so much time travel, but warping reality to yeah. put characters in radically new, bizarre situations. And that's really just kind of Twilight Zone shit, mm. you know? You've also posted on Twitter recently that you've restored the DeLorean from Back to the Future, which is one of my personal favorite time travel stories. Well, back, yeah, Back to the Future was a wonderful film and arguably one of the best time travel movies ever. Mm. Um, yeah, my, my old, my previous assistant, Terry Metalis, who's now a television writer himself, um, involved in helping to finance the restoration of, of that car. And it's, which is currently in the Universal Studios Hollywood Museum. And my name is on a plaque with some others. And that's kind of a, a science fiction badge of honor. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. It's great to have that restored and available for people to see. So thank you for that on a personal level. Oh, you know, oh, well, it's, it's, it's not like I restored the Mona Lisa here or something. It's no. just a movie <laughs> prop. If you're into it, oh, yeah. what's cool is that they found the original parts mm. of everything. There's no, it's not a reproduction. It's a true restoration of every, down to every rivet of the original car that was used in the movie. So it's, I mean, it took years to complete and um, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Just going back to Enterprise, we were talking a bit about its relationship to other Trek series, but one of the things I thought was done really well in Enterprise was the new take on the Vulcans, which I think was entirely necessary given it was set so far before the other series. They're going to be different. They're still developing as a race. The way that they were portrayed in Enterprise was quite unique and as such that relationship with humans provided quite a lot of tension in the series and was a really interesting aspect and perhaps a defining aspect of the show. Are you able to talk a little bit about when you first came up with that notion, that relationship, and how you thought about it? Yeah, Rick Berman and myself, we we thought and talked a lot about the Vulcans. And it's a controversial, uh, to my surprise, to my great surprise, very quickly became, became a controversial element on the show, which I just don't understand because why bother putting the making the Vulcans a part of a, this prequel if there's not going to be something different mm. about the relationship or an extrapolation. And to me, it was nothing more than an extrapolation of the original series or any of the other series that had mm. Vulcans like Voyager. There was a certain arrogance. I don't know. I, I saw the Vulcans. Um, I think they thought the Vulcans think they're superior to humans. Oh, well, I would emotions. agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> So how is it controversial to mm. then extrapolate backwards to think 
that when the Vulcans saw that this little human species finally invented warp drive and welcome to the intergalactic neighborhood, but oh boy, these these people are out of their minds. They're impulsive. Their primate their primate features have not been completely. Um, they're not completely under control. Yeah. Like they uh, not entirely. They kind of got it together, but not entirely. And we're gonna we're gonna kind of kind of babysit them for a while, and we start to chafe at that. That's a minor extrapolation. Mm. I think we could have taken it even further, quite honestly. It was like a parent-child relationship. It's like a parent-child relationship. That, to me, is fascinating. And Archer hates the Vulcans. They've been mm. holding us back. Fuck you, Archer says. Yeah. And that immediately creates a great dynamic with him and to Paul as they grow to respect each other in the pilot. And uh, and I, I don't know. I thought it was great. I loved the whole Vulcan thing. And then as the series goes on, we realize that Vulcans have their own shit. Yeah. You know, they stigmatize mind melds. They, you know, they have, you know, T'Pol becomes addicted to emotions at some point. Yeah. And I mean, there's, they themselves struggle with stuff. I don't know. I, I am the one, I, I know the Enterprise had its shortcomings, but the, I do not think that the Vulcan extrapolation was one of them and the other thing we learn later on i think it's in season four is that in many ways the vulcans actually fear humans because they see so much of themselves in humans that's right which is an interesting how is that new well how is that new oh not at all a parent-child relationship as well i really do not think that there's anything in enterprise that wasn't established in the original series Mm. with kirk and spock bones honestly i was just using that raw material you know Mm. Well, we talked about Dear Doctor and towards the end of the episode there's that moment of realisation when Archer finally understands what it must have been like for the Vulcans who did actually stay to help and then they were committed and he was faced with that same choice. Well, that end, doesn't that, that show ends with Archer not helping them. Well, that's right, but he saw how as much as he had resented the Vulcans that ultimately they were paying the price for that choice themselves. Well, what does Archer do at the end of Dear Doctor? Archer gives them a, something that's going to help ease the pain, yep. but he does not give them the cure. That's right. And he decides not to violate what, what is yet not quite yet the prime directive. By the way, having said that, that episode had a different ending than that we wrote, that the studio made us change. And the way that originally ended was that the doctor, Dr. Fox, hides the fact from Archer that, that, that there really is a cure. And makes the decision for him, which was far more controversial. Mm. And the studio didn't like the way it made Archer look weak, so we changed it. And maybe their ending was better. Mm. I don't think I've ever heard that before. But um, That's interesting. Another thing that stood out to me in terms of Enterprise is that because it sets so much before the other series, we're seeing humans that we can relate to more as viewers. They're not from this utopian 24th century where everyone's at peace and there's no poverty or racism or anything like that. We're seeing humans in more of a raw form. Um, What I'd be interested to know from you, particularly since we've had the new Star Trek movies out as well, is do you think there's still a place amongst modern movie and TV audiences for that optimism that was presented in Gene Roddenberry's vision and that was there in earlier Star Trek? Is that still something that audiences are wanting to see? Well, you know, a couple answers to that question. Um, and the, the Earth of Enterprise was pretty much heading in the right direction. I don't think there was a lot of strife going on down there, uh, at least compared to our Earth today. 
Mm. It may not have been the paradise of Picard's time or Kirk's time, but it was getting there. Right. Mm. Um, secondly, when you ask me these questions, it, it, it's just my opinion. It's just one guy's opinion. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I think, is there a place for optimism? Go to a Star Trek convention. Mm. You know, look, how much money did the new Star Trek movie make? Of course there is. I mean, that's why start, you know, the number one question I get, I've, I've had over the past, you know, 25 years has been why Star Trek persevered so, for so long. Why is it still around? Why is it so popular? Mm. That's one of the main reasons because so much science fiction, if not most, is apocalyptic. Yeah. Our future is doomed. What a novelty to think that our future is great. Mm. One could argue, well, that's not dramatically interesting. Well, that was the genius of Roddenberry's concept. Mm. It was the aliens that were metaphors for our follies. Mm. It remains a genius concept. You look at Spock or De, and you think, and, and they are the most human, even though they aren't human or are partly human, they're the most human. Yeah. And that's the genius of Star Trek, the genius of science fiction in general, as a metaphorical, more oblique way to explore the human condition. So is there a place for optimistic an optimistic future where diversity is embraced and everyone has a place and we've got our shit together? I, I would hope so. It sounds like Star Trek has fitted in very well with your own personal values over the years. Well, it, it's my personal values. My personal values may or may not be the right thing. They're just my personal values. Mm. It's not only uh, connected to my personal values, they've, it's informed mm. to a large degree of my personal values. You know, Star, Star Trek is a secular, inclusive, humanistic view of the world. It's it's a very clean, optimistic view of, of humanity, and very in, in, you know scientific. Mm. Um, this will be controversial. Atheistic, quite frankly, the, the religion has been vanquished in Roddenberry's world. Yeah. You know, when you hear about religion, it's Bajorans yeah. or even Borg have their own kind of religion of perfection. Or Ferengi. You know, or Ferengi. There's not, but humans, they ain't talking about it because it's, it's gone. It has to be to get to the place where human beings have to be. A lot of people would disagree with me, but um, I mean, I talked, I gave a speech, a terrible speech, a terrible nervous speech. Um with halfway decent content about Star Trek as an atheistic mythology. You know, atheists don't have mythology by definition. Yeah. And yet the closest perhaps we might have as a popul a populist mythology might be Gene Roddenberry's vision, where mm. it's a future where religion has no longer has a place and humanity is better for it. I have actually seen that speech and for anyone that's listening and is interested in it, it's definitely worth a watch. You can see it on YouTube actually. Not really, because that was one of the worst. I, I've done my share of public appearances at universities and mm. Star Trek conventions and whatnot. That was at a, 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 an atheist convention in Iceland. And I, I went on right after Richard Dawkins. Uh, tough act to follow. If anyone knows who that is, they'll know that it's a tough. And I just had a complete nervous breakdown. I like started my speech. I just start, start and stop my speech three times. It was interesting anyway. 
In closing, one of the things that us Enterprise fans are really looking forward to is the forthcoming release of the Season 2 Blu-ray. Are you able to give us any inside information on what we can expect from that release? Well, I, I don't know how inside it is. I think it's probably been talked about already, but Roger Lay um, and his cohorts managed to get the entire cast back together. And I don't think they've been in one room since the finale of the of the show. I mean, I haven't seen Jolene Blaylock in years. We got we got everyone in one room and did a. I moderated just a, a discussion. It's like two hours. Mm. I don't edit it down to but it was fascinating it was awkward it was funny it was kind of soulful it's, it's it was actually kind of amazing yeah i sat right next to julian blaylock who i had some issues with um on the show we kind of went at each other and it was not pleasant mm. um and i was finally able to ask her what the fuck was going on <laughs> like it was uh kind of cathartic Mm. You know, it's it's really it was it's it's kind of a, a great feature, and I got to give compliments to the guys making these Blu-rays. They are giving you the best possible stuff. What they're doing with the next generation Blu-rays is a, is jaw dropping. Mm. If you're a fan, and they're doing the same thing with Enterprise, like they are getting really into showing you stuff that no one's ever going to show you again. Um, so it's pretty cool. Well, certainly the season one Blu-ray is outstanding. So I'm sure season two is going to be just as good. Well, I think it, I think it's it is. Um, I th- if, if because getting an entire cast together in one room <laughs> with the showrunner is is not easy. Um, but it's it, it's it's really cool, and I I'm, I'm actually looking forward to what they're doing for the next two seasons. I'll be curious. I don't think they quite. I think maybe. I, and they'll probably kill me for saying this. We haven't really nailed it yet, but I think season three might emphasize the writers might get a writer's reunion together or do something. You know, they tend to do something each um, Blu-ray for the next gen that's a little different. We'll certainly be waiting with bated breath for that one, me personally anyway. Well, thank you, Brandon, for your time today. I really appreciate it. I know you're very busy. It's been a pleasure, and I wish you the best of luck with your future projects being Cosmos and the new one that's just been announced, which is Salem. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I really enjoyed doing these discussions and I actually really enjoy the, the Twitter interaction I have with fans. So I encourage anybody listening to follow me at Brand Braga. Um, it's a lot. Of, it's actually kind of like a, a Star Trek convention on my phone <laughs> and I, I rather enjoy it. That's great. And I've seen that William Shatner gives you a little bit of shit every now and again too. Yeah, well, he does, and I like it because it always gives me a few more followers as well. (laughs) I I like the the generosity of the people who have millions of followers and am able to get thousands. (laughs) Well, as I said, thank you very much. It's been good talking to you. Well, Kate, that was wonderful, and I really appreciate Brandon giving us his time for that interview and – you know, I've listened to him talk a lot on the Enterprise Blu-rays and other interviews and such, and, and there's still a lot of stuff in there that I had never heard before. So that was really fantastic. Yeah, it was it was quite amazing. And as, as someone that's a massive fan of Enterprise and uh, and particularly of, of his work, 
you know, all of the work that he's done throughout Star Trek. It was quite an honour to be able to talk to him about that. And and you're right. I mean, I've listened to a lot of interviews that he's done, not just on the Blu-ray, but you know, that, that's available from conventions that he's attended. And it, there, was, there was still a lot of stuff in that interview that I have never heard before. It's quite fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah, very fascinating stuff. So again, I hope everyone enjoyed that. And why don't we tell everyone where to find us, Kate, if they'd like to share their thoughts on Brandon Braga's work or enterprise in general, you can go to trek.fm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show, choose Warp 5, and that will come to us. You can also hop over to our forums at trek.fm slash forums. There's a section there for Enterprise and Warp 5. You can talk to us, talk to other listeners, share your thoughts on this great show and on Brandon's work. If you'd like to send us a voicemail, you can easily do that from any page in the website. Just look along the right side of each page and you'll see a tab there that says send voicemail. Click that, a box will pop up and you can record a message using your camera's mic and upload it to us as an MP3 file right there from the page. If you're on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trekfm. And of course, you'll always find us on Twitter under username trekfm. Now, Kate, what if people would like to look you up personally? Where should they go? If they'd like to look me up, then they, they can find me on Twitter at Kate is great okay. Just uh, if you'd like to follow me or, or have a chat about Enterprise or Warp 5, yeah, just follow me, let me know, and I'll follow you back. I'd also just like to remind everyone that if you're interested in following Brannon Braga, then you can find him at Brannon Braga on Twitter as well. Very easy to remember. Absolutely. All right. And if you'd like to find me, my username on Twitter is C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. You can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that username. You'll also find me elsewhere on the network every week on a variety of shows. If you like Deep Space Nine, you'll find me on The Orb with Matthew Rushing, where we talk only about DS9, similar format to this show here. If you're into books and comics, check out Literary Treks, which Matthew and I also do together, where we talk books and comics every week and interview authors. And you'll find me on The Ready Room, where we talk about all five live-action series, as well as the movies and other special topics. We have a great large panel discussion, and we cover news as well. And also, we've of course, been asked with this show being new, how do I get the show? And for the first week of Warp 5, your options were pretty much to stream from the website or download the MP3 file or the enhanced file directly. Thankfully, the show is now in iTunes. So if you'd like to subscribe, you can do that. Just hop over to iTunes. You'll get the enhanced version. We do put chapters into the show to help you navigate the show, artwork and links. And we'll be on Stitcher very soon. And if you like the show while you're hopping around, go over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. It helps other fans of Enterprise find the show in the very mysterious ranking system of iTunes. We also wanted to invite you to check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. If you like the jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me here on Warp 5, you know, maybe you like it better than the version used on the show. You'll find that plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. So go pick up that album right now over on iTunes or on Amazon. Really great stuff there by Andrew. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsors. First, there's Squarespace, the web's best hosting and CMS that makes it simple for you to create a beautiful blog, website, portfolio, online store, or, you know, anything you can imagine. 
Create your own space today. I promise you're going to love it. Just go to squarespace.com for your free 14-day trial and then use offer code TREK7 to save 10%. And please visit trekfan.org. It's an amazing chance to come together with fans to do more than just talk about Star Trek. Of course, we all love to talk about Trek, but here you'll be collaborating with other fans to solve puzzles and complete mission objectives, IRL as they say, or in real life. So turn your love for Star Trek into something that can help us all move toward that future we love. Support us and Trek Fan by visiting trekfan.org. Solve that first puzzle and take the next step on your adventure. And lastly, if you would personally like to support the network and our programming, visit trek.fm slash donate. We have eight new alien-themed badges as a thank you for your contribution, and they're perfect for your shirt, your bag, or even your dress uniform. They're 44mm badges with original illustration by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the art that you see on our site. Those are at trek.fm slash donate, and your donations help us cover the costs of production, storage, and bandwidth that's needed to bring this programming to you every week. So please help us out, and please support our sponsors Squarespace and TrekFan, and we thank them for their support of Trek FM. I'd like to thank you all for listening again this week, and I hope you'll join us all again next week for another look at Enterprise.